Now let's settle this. Though your sin be as scarlet, I will make it white as snow. Though your sin is red as crimson, I will make it white as wool. Is anyone thirsty? Come, let him drink. Even if he has no money, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Come, follow me. 
and I will make you fishers of men. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. As Jesus walked by, he saw Zacchaeus and called him by name and said, Zacchaeus, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Jesus said, come. And Peter got over on the other side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. I'm the bread of life. If anyone is hungry, come to me. He'll never be hungry again. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. If anyone is thirsty, come. From Isaiah all the way to the end of the pages of Revelation, we hear the invitation of Jesus to come, an invitation into his presence, an invitation to experience him, to know him, to see him for who he truly is. Come. Perhaps the most terrifying and exciting and and life-changing words we can ever hear from God the Father. Come. Come and see. Last week we, uh, we started with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which was humanity's cry for God to come to us. And this week we flip it around. O Come, all ye faithful, is Jesus' cry from a manger in Bethlehem for us to come and behold him. Come. 700 years before there were um, decrees that the empire should be taxed, before a star blazed across the sky, before a virgin conceived, before angels sang, before a cry went up from a manger in Bethlehem, the prophet Isaiah proclaimed the coming of the king. He said the nations will come and kings will bow before his shining. Come. Isaiah kind of gave a save the date for the coming of the king. An invitation into his presence. I love a good invitation. Uh, And I think a lot of times when we think about invitations, we think about the pieces of paper and the cards we get in the mail that invite us to events, to weddings, to parties, to birthdays. But there are other kinds of invitations that invite us into deeper relationships, that invite us to life-changing events. I think about eight years ago at the Lincoln Memorial when Ryan Zimple got down on one knee and invited me to be a part of his life for the rest of our lives. And in that moment of joy, I responded, are you sure? (laughs) And he said yes. And so I said yes. And everything changed. I love to be a part of invitations like that. Um, About a month ago, a little over a month ago, our youth pastor, Jenna Lee LaForce, said yes to a life with Dan Hurley. And I don't know what Dan was thinking. I think he doesn't realize that girls have a really hard time keeping secrets. Because he told me about this several weeks before he was going to do it and asked me if I would help arrange the ask. And I spent, I'm not kidding, like, hours 
planning and scheming and talking and organizing about how to get her to the predetermined place at the pre-appointed time so that he could pop the question. But I was, I was just so excited because I knew that this was an invitation that was going to change her life forever. And I think at the core, the message of Christmas is an invitation. An invitation in to see who Jesus truly is. An invitation to behold him, to greet him, to adore him. It's an invitation to his coming. Now, I think, I think a lot of churches, or at least the churches that I've grown up in and be a, been a part of, we spend a lot of time inviting people to the cross. You know, inviting people to that moment in time when Jesus paid a penalty on the cross for our sin. We invite people to see the substitution of Christ, that place where we find salvation. We invite people to exchange their sin for his righteousness. We invite people to the foot, to the foot metaphorically of the cross where the Savior died. And we say, come. And that's probably the most important invitation that we could ever possibly make. That's the place where history changed. It's the place where we will make the defining decision of our lives. I, when I talk with young 20-somethings who are wanting to preach and learning how to, to communicate the gospel, I always tell them, open up to the text, read it, and then make a beeline to the cross. Because we want to invite people to the cross. But I wonder if sometimes we lose the power of the cross because we haven't invited people to the cradle first. Because we can't fully understand the death of the man on the cross until we understand the birth of the baby in the manger. And we've got to be invited to that place where we understand the story of the baby so that we can better understand the story of the man. I was, uh, I grew up at two very fun, great, awesome, big Southern Baptist churches in Alabama. And every year they would do a big Christmas program. I'm talking, this was Huge. It was a production. I mean, we had camels and sheep and donkeys, like real animals coming down, you know, the, the, the aisles of the church sanctuary. We flew angels in. I mean, not the real ones, the ones with really heavy southern accents. We, this was a big deal. And we would spend about 75 minutes celebrating the Christmas story. And then we would take about a 15 minute intermission. And then everyone would come back on December 24th to watch the Easter story played out as well, because we couldn't be Baptist if we didn't invite people to the cross. And in some ways, it was almost as though we approached the Christmas story as though it were the family-friendly, fun, peaceful, happy, just start to the more important events of the story. And while I certainly don't in any way want to downplay the importance of the cross. I want to elevate what happened at the manger. I want to bring to our attention the importance of coming and seeing Christ for who he really is because when we see Jesus 
It changes everything. When we see Jesus for who he really is, we can't help but fall down and worship him. The miracle of Easter begins with the miracle of Christmas. Because the substitution of the man on the cross makes no sense without the incarnation of the baby in the manger. Now, incarnation is just a fancy, big theological term that means God became flesh. That God became a human being. As the carol, um, O come all ye faithful, declares he is the word of God now in flesh appearing. So we'll get to the cross, but let's just start at the manger. And I think that we have this idea, again, that the Christmas story is just this nice start. It's, it's the fun time of year. It's the fun moment in the church calendar when everything is, is peaceful because, right, he was the prince of peace and he came to bring peace. And so we have these idyllic scenes of nature and snow and, and carolers and, and mangers and, and, Shepherds that look clean, huddled around a manger, and, and, and we sing about how the night was so silent, despite the fact that there were angels scaring people out of their wits. <laughs> and one of our favorites all the time, and, and one that has brought so many children into a place of loving Jesus, away in a manger, has this little phrase about this baby that even when he wakes, no crying he makes. I don't think this carol was written by a woman who's been a mother. (laughs) Or if it was, she was trying to encourage her children to stop crying. What we have to understand is that part of the miracle of the incarnation is that God was fully human. That God, the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer of the universe became a fetus in the womb of a woman. He, he was born. He had a physical birth. He grew. He cried. He slept. He ate food. He experienced what we experienced. He was tempted like we were tempted. He was fully man. Flesh and blood. The incarnation. God Almighty come in the skin of his own creation. He was fully man. And because he was fully man, he was able to take our place. Because when he hung on that cross, he hung on that cross as a man and suffered and died as a man and therefore could represent us to God. One of the very first bad teachings to show up in the church was this idea that Jesus couldn't possibly have been a man. Because if Jesus was holy, there's no way he could be like one of us. And so he just appeared to be a man. He just gave the appearance of being a man. He just kind of showed up in human form, but wasn't really flesh and blood. And this was such a big deal that Paul, in many of his letters, addresses that particular bad teaching. In Colossians especially, he talks about Jesus being a man. The other miracle of the incarnation is that this baby in the manger who was born of this woman was also fully God. His birth was supernatural. 
Later in life, he claimed to be God. The demons claimed that he was God. God declared him to be God. He worked miracles. He did things that no other man had ever done. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And because of that, was able to stand in our place and without sin and without corruption, take our place and represent us to God and was also able to represent God to us. The miracle of Christmas is that when we see Jesus, we see one who is fully man and fully God. One of the next bad teachings that came into the church showed up around the first few centuries. In fact, it got out of hand so much that in the fourth century AD, there was a council that was called the Council of Nicaea. And church leaders from all over the empire showed up to talk about this idea that maybe Jesus wasn't fully God. There was a guy by the name of Arius who was preaching that Jesus was not actually God. He was not co-equal with God. He was not co-eternal with God. Rather, God the Father had created Jesus, that he was a created being just like everything else. And at the Council of Nicaea, as Arius is sharing his views and teaching this doctrine, there was a bishop that got so ticked off that he got up, walked across the middle of the room to Arius and punched him in the face while he was preaching. This particular bishop's name was St. Nicholas. And in the very beginning, St. Nicholas's naughty and nice list had nothing to do with whether or not you were a sinner or a saint, but whether or not you were a heretic. He protected this idea that we see a baby at Bethlehem who is fully God. And when we see that, it should leave us awestruck. It should leave us in a place of complete wonder at the mystery of Christmas. All right, I got to start it in a real theological place. Let's turn in scripture to see the cast of characters who were part of this because honestly, where they lived was not in this place of theological pontification. They lived in this real place of life of pressures, of chaos, of family and friends, of tensions and temptations. And even though they lived in a land that was halfway around the world from where we are today and in a time that is 2,000 years in the past, their world probably didn't look that much different from ours in the ways of the pressures that they faced and the questions they had to ask. So if you've got your Bibles this weekend, turn over to the book of Matthew. We're going to be actually in Matthew and Luke, so you can kind of put your thumb in both places. And in Matthew chapter 1, we start with the story of a man by the name of Joseph. A man who lived a very simple life in the town of Nazareth. Very conservative religious place. And what we read in Matthew 1 verse 18 It says, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. Good start to the story. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. 
As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. What? Seriously? I mean, this story has become so familiar to us. If we ever, like, stop to think about what is happening here. Joseph lives in a very conservative, religious place. And, and we're told that he's a good man. And he learns that his bride-to-be, the woman that he loves, the woman that he invited to spend his, that he invited her to spend her life with him, has betrayed him. She's shown up pregnant. He's embarrassed. He's shamed. He's humiliated. He's got to make decisions not only about how he's supposed to personally react and respond to this news, but he's also got to make a decision about how he's going to publicly react and respond to her. Both Jewish law and secular law at the time gave him every right as a fiance to publicly shame her, to humiliate her, to put her to death. And Joseph, though, because he was a good man, decided just to do it quietly so as not to bring any more shame or humiliation upon her. And then he has a dream. And an angel shows up and quotes some prophet from 700 years ago. And Joseph wakes up, and that's enough for him. And he goes and he takes Mary into his home. I would have had a few questions first. I would have needed some things settled and I would have probably wanted the angel to show up to everybody in town (laughs) and make this announcement. Because not only has he dealt with the shame and the embarrassment of this woman that he has so desperately loved, embarrassing him, humiliating him. Now he's taking her into his house as though nothing was wrong, potentially communicating to the entire village that it was his child. And then committed to raising a child who was not his own. Evidently, Joseph heard something in the angel's command that this is Emmanuel, God with us. That caused him to see Jesus differently. And when he saw Jesus for who Jesus was, it caused him to react in a way that went against everything that he knew how to act. It changed the course of his life. He was willing to risk everything, his reputation, his relationships. He was willing to live in a way that went against the socially accepted norms. Because he saw something about Jesus. Meanwhile, Mary has had her own experience. If you flip over to Luke chapter 1, we read about her story. 
Angels are popping out all over the place. Verse 28, the angel Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Wouldn't we love to hear that? Except when people in the Bible heard things like that, it usually didn't turn out too well for them. Maybe we don't want to be so favored. Verse 29, confused and disturbed. You know, that might be the understatement of the Bible. (laughs) You're just minding your own business in your home one day and an angel shows up and says, greetings, woman, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. I'd be a little confused and disturbed as well. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, thank you. That clears up everything. A great deal less confused and disturbed now. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. Good question. At least Mary got a question in. (laughs) The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. And then there's some other talk about how her cousin Elizabeth, though she's very old, is now pregnant as well, as though this is supposed to convince Mary that miracles are happening. Like, if I'm Mary, I'm thinking, yeah, Elizabeth's really old and all, but, like, I am a virgin. (laughs) I have not had sex. (laughs) This is a little bit harder for me. (laughs) Disturbed and confused. It just keeps getting worse. (laughs) And yet, verse 38, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Mary is invited into the grand adventure of God. Not just come and watch from afar, not just come and put your eyes on what God is going to do, but God is going to come inside of you and come into the world through you. Mary is invited into this story, again, risking her reputation and her relationships. Everything that social norms would have required. She runs against it all. And Mary is not just a passive observer in this story. She says, yes, whatever the Lord would have for me, I'm in. I'm in this thing. Let's do it. She responds to the invitation that she's been given. I'm the Lord's servant, whatever God asks of me. Mary and Joseph were invited into chaos. They were invited into very difficult places. Experiencing the thrill of hope for them first meant walking through years of uncertainty. Years of whispered comments by people in the village. Years of risk. And yet anticipation that what they saw And what they heard was real and therefore changed everything. There was another group, the shepherds, Luke 2, verse 8. Another group that was invited in. 
That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. And then the angels sing. And then going down to verse 16, the shepherds hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Shepherds, more ordinary people, called into an extraordinary adventure, invited to come see Jesus. And they came and they saw Jesus, and their response from there was to run out and tell everyone that they could find, and to glorify and praise God. Meanwhile, Mary, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of animals and angels singing and smelly shepherds coming into the place where she was after having just given birth, Mary thinks on what she's experienced and what God has done in her life. And she reflects on the child that she holds. She's been invited to see Jesus She saw something that night that she kept close to her heart for her entire life. Oh, come let us adore him. A baby in a stone feeding trough for animals. God in human flesh, the creator in the skin of his own creation. Does that not just leave us in a sense of wonder? Does that not leave us awestruck and dumbfounded that God, the Almighty, comes in the form of a baby? Come, let us adore him. Let us see him for who he is. These people, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, did not respond to an invitation just because it happened to show up, they realized that God was doing something and they wanted to be a part of it. The word adoration means to worship God for who he is. For who he is. Not for what he's done, but for who he is. And what we find is that when we see Jesus for who he really is, we can't, Not worship. When we see Jesus for who he really is, it leaves us awestruck with a sense of wonder. And one of the things that I find is that adoration helps us to see Christ more fully. And when we see Christ more fully, it leads to more adoration. It's the reason why there is an endless refrain in heaven of of, of singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It is on cosmic repeat because the more God is worshipped, the more he is seen. And the more he is seen, the more 
We're called to worship. Oh, come, let us adore him when we see who he really is. We have to worship. We have to adore him. We have to come into his presence and see who he is. And just worship him for who he is. Fully God, fully man. I started today in a pretty heady place. And then talked about the chaos and the insanity that people were invited into. And one thing that I absolutely believe about good theology is that good theology should always lead us to two things. One, worshiping God more rightly and living more like him. And I don't think that adoration is just a state of mind or of heart, but adoration is something that moves us into action. And so when we have good theology and we see Christ for who he really is, it should change everything about us. Just to go back for a moment to the characters that were on the invite list on the original Christmas day. Thinking about Joseph, adoration for him meant moving him to a place of action. It wasn't just about having a certain mindset or having a certain feeling. It moved him to act in a way that went outside of the choices he would normally make. Let's just get real practical about this right now. Because I think that the best theology is very, very practical. Many of us go to places of chaos and insanity on Christmas. Sometimes that chaos and insanity is good. It's trying to put bikes together at two in the morning and realizing you don't have a part that you need. Sometimes it's, it's darker than that. It's family tensions that have been around for decades that have never been spoken of. What does it mean for us to act like Joseph in the stories of our lives? See, Joseph, when he saw Jesus for who he was, decided to take an action that put someone else's higher good above his own. How can we act in such a way this Christmas that we put someone's highest good at the forefront of how we act? How do we love our family? How do we love our friends? How do we maybe act in a way that goes against what our normal desire, our normal comfort, our normal choices would be? How do we love people in the midst of chaos and uncertainty? Because worship isn't something that we experience for 20 minutes at a church service. Worship is the way that we live. And adoring Christ means living like him. Adoring Christ means responding to the invitation that he's given to us to come see who he is and then change the way that we walk because of it. Another way that adoration expresses itself is through taking time to just think and reflect Contemplate on what Jesus has done. It's, it's how we see Mary responding on the first Christmas night in, in the midst of chaos and craziness and insanity. Mary just kind of stops. Some translations say that she pondered these things in her heart. She stored them in her heart. She reflected on them and thought about them often. 
Part of me gets really tired of, of hearing preachers talk about how, oh, we've lost the true meaning of Christmas. We all need to slow down. This is supposed to be a time where, where we, we're, we're not running so fast and it's not so chaotic and crazy. Because when I read the original Christmas story, it was chaotic and crazy. And I think chaos and insanity is just part of the reality that we live in. The question is not, um, is, is the state of affairs around us one of peace, but what kind of peace are we bringing in to the state of affairs that we live in? I think it's about finding moments in the midst of insanity and chaos to reflect on what Jesus has done in our lives and to celebrate for it. To reflect on who he really is. And celebrate him for it. Uh, on December 1st, I, I woke up and, and I got out of bed and I went to go downstairs to get something to drink. And, and I noticed that on the doorknob on our bedroom, there was a little star ornament with a tag that said, follow me. And there was a string attached to it. And I followed that string through the entire house. Upstairs, downstairs, back upstairs, all around. And it led into our entertainment room where there were 25 small green boxes arranged in the shape of a Christmas tree. And inside each of those boxes, Ryan had placed a slip of paper for each day, apparently. I haven't gotten all the way yet, but every day so far, a slip of paper that has a passage of Scripture to meditate on and an action to take that reflects what Christmas is about. And this week, one of the actions that I had to take was to make a list of 10 things that I was thankful for from this past year. It's stuff like that that causes me to find peace in the midst of chaos of the season. That causes me to stop like Mary and reflect on the goodness of God. To reflect on the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God in my life. To give him praise and worship for who he is. And seeing that because of who he is, there are things that he has done for me. And I need to stop and pause and make sure I give him thanks for those things. What do you need, very practical again, what do you need to stop and thank God for right now? I mean, maybe you just tune me out for the rest of the time and start making that list of things that you're thankful for. Is there somebody in your life that you need to communicate thanks to? And then finally, adoration sometimes expresses itself as proclamation. Pastor Mark has often defined worship as bragging about God to God, and evangelism is bragging about God to others. And the shepherds did both on that night. Adoration for them, seeing Jesus for who he really was, led them to worship God, to brag about God to God, and also to brag about God to others. They went out and told everyone they could find. Very practical. Who do you need to invite to church over the next couple weeks? There are people in your life, there are family and friends that are more apt to come with you to a church gathering during this season of the year than any other time. Who do you need to talk to about the goodness of God in your life? Sometimes adoration is not just a song that we sing, but it's words that we say to others that declare who God is in our lives. 
adoration. It it leads us to places of proclaiming who God is. It leads us to places of action that go against our normal choices and desires because we believe and we want to embrace the highest good of another person. And sometimes it leads us to places of thanksgiving. Christmas is an invitation to see who Jesus is to love him, to adore him, to be caught up in the experience of his life. So there's, there's two places I want to invite you to this weekend. I want to invite you first to the cradle, just to see Jesus for who he really is. This mystery of the incarnation, this fully man, fully God, creator, almighty, come to earth. And some of us just need to pause and reflect and adore him for who he is. And then some of you here this weekend need to be invited also to the cross. Because the cross starts making so much sense when we understand what happened in the cradle. We see this man, fully human, fully divine, taking our place for us came to earth for the very purpose of taking our place on the cross. And so if you've looked at Jesus, but you've never made him the center of your life, why not? Come to a place this weekend where adoring Christ is not just looking at a peaceful scene on a postcard that you get in the mail, but it's coming to the foot of the cross and realizing that who he is and what he did are connected. That it's at the cradle that we recognize who he is and it's the cross that we must respond to what he's done. When we see him for who he really is, it leads us to adoration. And when we engage in adoration, it causes us to see him more fully as who he really is. Come, let us adore him. God, I thank you so much that from the very first pages of Scripture, you made promise of redemption. And God, that then through your actions and through your promises and through the mouths of your prophets, you declared that a king was coming. And God, this weekend, we just want to come first to that cradle and see you, who you really are, fully God, fully man, the amazing, incredible, unbelievable mystery of your incarnation. God, we just want to pause and make sure that we allow the wonder and the awe to slam us the way it should. And God, if there is anybody here this weekend that needs to also respond to you at the cross, pray that you would invite them there, that they would know that invitation is for them. Holy Spirit, draw us to you. God, I pray that you would just help our hearts to be oriented towards you and we would respond in a way God, that we would respond because you are worthy and you are holy and you are awesome and you are good and you are faithful and you are sovereign.
God, help us to worship you more so that we can see you more. And God, when we see you more, as you reveal yourself more, give us the ability and capacity and energy to worship you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.